Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 234, Pearl Harbor Attack, the Second Japanese Airstrike. Last time, we saw the first attack wave hit various airfields and other facilities to the north, east, and south of Battleship Row, just before 8 a.m. on December 7, 1941. Then came the torpedo bombers from the south. Following this devastating attack, Commander Fuchida and his high-level bombers flew over the great ships, of which five in total would be sunk. The torpedo planes sunk the decommissioned battleship Utah on the north side of Fort Island, and then along Battleship Row, the dreadnoughts California, Oklahoma, and West Virginia were dealt fatal blows, while Fuchida's bombers obliterated the Arizona with a lucky hit at 8.10 a.m. But the surprise attack of Japan's first air fleet was only getting started. The second attack wave, which would hopefully be engaging a demoralized enemy, consisted of 167 planes, 78 dive bombers, and the rest high-level bombers. However, the Americans were by now, largely, as armed and ready as they could be, given the death and destruction thus far, and that much of their guns and ammo had been locked up, having either to bust them out or carry them to places for readiness. As for the approaching Japanese pilots, their list of targets altered slightly from the first group. Primarily, they were to go after the carriers, but if they were not in harbor, their second priority were the cruisers, which escorted the carriers, and there were eight of those in harbor on this day. Lastly, there was the American battleships, if none of the first two of the list could be engaged. Again, it was Yamamoto's intention to cripple the American fleet for at least six months, hopefully a year. As their objectives were so, the dive bombers were carrying general-purpose bombs, highly effective against enemy cruisers, However, these pilots would be less disciplined than their comrades of the first wave. Their youth played a role, surely, but what pilot wanted to return to his carrier and say he struck at a cruiser, a destroyer, or an auxiliary ship? No, the men of the second wave were obsessed with the battleships. Fuchida was still flying around Pearl, making sure his men of the first wave got home safely but he was also trying to assess the damage done so far. 
which was getting more difficult by the moment, as more American armaments came online and the smoke rose from dozens of wrecked planes, buildings, or ships. These conditions would also hamper the men of the second attack wave. By the time the second group was making their way back to the carriers, it would be that, of their 79 high-level bombers, 30 would go for the battleships. 17 of them would aim for the cruisers, as they were supposed to. 16 would target destroyers, again respectable, but 12 would waste their ordnance on auxiliary ships, which were not at all on their list. Their attack began at 8.54 a.m. Some of the first planes to arrive went after the USS Nevada, which had been on the far right end of Battleship Row. She had sustained some damage, being hit by a single torpedo at 8.03 a.m., but was the only battleship that could get underway. It was decided to get her out of the harbor before further damage could be inflicted. Nevada left her moorings at 8.40 a.m. Still building up speed, the Nevada had a hole in her port side below her two forward turrets, and though her anti-torpedo protection had taken the brunt of the blast, she had serious leakage in her inmost bulkhead, which allowed considerable amounts of water to come inside. As the Japanese bombers reached Battleship Row, they spotted Nevada getting underway. This was simply too tempting a target to miss, certainly as she was already damaged. The nearby pilots all seemed to have the same thought. If Nevada could be sunk close to the harbor's opening, or in this narrow passage just south of Ford Island, the harbor could be closed off for some time. Improbable, but again, too tempting for these young, proud men to resist. The first 14 or so Vail bombers made for the wounded battleship. With enemy planes coming both from the northwest and the northeast, the Nevada was hit by five bombs at 9 a.m., along with a few more near misses. Now her forecastle deck was opened up, which caused more leaks and water to rush in at an even faster rate. Moreover, there were now gasoline fires forward and other fires in her superstructure and midships. Clearly, Nevada was not going to clear the harbor, so she was pointed, as best as could be done, with the intent of beaching her across from Fort Island. The crew continued to battle the blazes, but with so little control, the battleship started to turn, to the point where she was actually facing up harbor. Tugs rushed in and pushed the Nevada again away and across from Fort Island where she was finally beached at 9.10 a.m. at Hospital Point. Of her almost 1,500 crew, 50 officers and crew were now dead, with many more injured, including Ensign Joseph Tasik Jr. Having relieved the officer of the deck that morning, he was executing morning colors when a Japanese bomber strafed the Nevada. Tossig sounded general quarters and then ran to his battle station. His position was gunnery officer of the starboard anti-aircraft batteries. Soon, another enemy plane flew over, strafing the ship. One bullet went through Tossig's leg, sending the young man to the deck. Opening his eyes, he found his left foot 
tucked up under his armpit. His response, that's a hell of a place for a foot to be. But Tossig refused to leave his post and continued to direct fire that morning. His left leg would be amputated. But Tossig was back at his post. Three days later, he received a Navy Cross for heroism. The next day, Nevada settled to the bottom. But fortunately for the crew, she was in shallow waters. She was the oldest battleship at Pearl at the time of the attack, but would be one of the first to be salvaged. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Dell Tech. Meanwhile, a few other dive bombers went after the wounded California on the far left end of Battleship Row. She was already doomed by all intents and purposes, but the eager pilots could not know this, so more bombs were wasted. Now it was the turn of the USS Pennsylvania, the U.S. Navy's flagship. Called the Grand Old Lady of the Fleet since her commission in 1916, Pennsylvania was the only battleship in dry dock that morning, currently in dry dock number one. To the south of, or below, the already-covered Helena and Oglala, the Pennsylvania had three of her four screws removed. Next to her, on the left, were the destroyers Downs and Cassin, also in dry dock. As the flagship was supposed to have departed the day before, her entire crew was on board. In fact, her anti-aircraft crews would be some of those who first fired, on the Japanese planes of the first wave. By 8.05 a.m., all of her anti-aircraft batteries would be operational. Still, nine bombers made for the Pennsylvania, but only one medium bomb landed true at 9.06 a.m. on her starboard side of the boat deck. A nearby crew operating a 5-inch or 130-millimeter gun mount was instantly killed. The destroyer Kassen was hit twice, and the Downs once. Fires erupted on the Downs, which caused her fuel oil tanks to explode in their own right, which sent flames upwards more than 100 feet. This explosion sent a part of a torpedo tube, which weighed just over 1,000 pounds, to fly into the forestall of the flagship. When the second attack wave left the area, Pennsylvania was left with 15 men killed, 14 men missing, and another 38 wounded. The majority of the remainder of the second attack wave consisted of scattered and mostly failed attacks on all sides of Ford Island. These attacks sought out auxiliary or smaller warships. Still, the climate of terror they created would not be forgotten by those on the ground or aboard ships. It must be said, the second wave was dominated by poorly chosen targets. Just three berths to the left of the Pennsylvania, the destroyer Shaw, also in dry dock, so it may have looked like a capital ship, 
was set upon by 15 bombers, yet was only struck three times. Still, another massive fireball was the result at 9.30 a.m. On the west side of Fort Island, the sea tender Curtis, used for ferrying people and supplies to larger ships, became another victim. However, this appears not to be a mistake on the pilot's part, but rather, as his plane was damaged, he decided to take out the nearest vessel to him. The damaged vow now became a kamikaze, slamming into the Curtis. As she was unable to move under her own power, another pilot hit her with his bomb. Just to the east of the Curtis, but still on the north side of Ford Island, the light cruiser Raleigh, still listing to port from the torpedo hit earlier, was targeted by five dive bombers. The ship's crew had jettisoned topside weight, which not only kept her upright, but allowed her gunners to continue firing. That morning, the Raleigh's gun crews would down five Japanese planes. Still, a single bomb struck her at 9.08 a.m., causing further damage, and though several crew were injured, none of them died that day. And this poor target selection and inaccurate bombing continued. On the south end of the naval yard, just below Battleship Row, was the USS Honolulu, a Brooklyn-class light cruiser. Although attacked by several bombers, there was only one near-miss, which caused slight damage. In all, the second attack wave only scored one hit and one near-miss on their highest priority targets. This compared to their 55% hit rate during practice drills. Overall, 15 bombs landed on various targets, which left the second wave with only one major victory, the beaching of the Nevada. To be sure, the damage inflicted by the second wave could have been so much more. To the northeast of Ford Island, where the damaged repair vessel Vestal had made for to beach, there was the modern cruiser Phoenix, but she was ignored by both waves, even though planes had to fly over her who came in from the east. Then there's the entire naval yard south of Battleship Row. Yes, the pilots were after specific types of ships, per their orders, but currently stationed there were four 10-ton modern cruisers, all tightly packed together with their hatches open and flammable material nearby, i.e. the above-ground fuel tanks. The pilots could not have known the details of these ships, of course, but there was little action there, hence there was little smoke to hide these vessels. Only ten dive bombers made a run against this general area, but as we have seen, there was only the one near miss of the Honolulu. By 9.30 a.m., the planes of the second attack wave were making their way north, back to their carriers of the first air fleet. In their wake, they left 2,335 military personnel dead, 1,178 more wounded, as well as 68 civilians dead and another 35 wounded. Of the five sunken battleships, only the Arizona and Oklahoma would never serve again. The rest would be resurfaced, repaired, and taken into battle, as were the other major ships that only suffered damage. 
As for the surviving officers and enlisted men, many of them assumed these two raids were the precursor to a proper invasion. And with the Americans' airfields devastated, with at least 160 aircraft destroyed, or at least inoperable, the majority focused on the wounded, it would have been hard to discern their more intense feeling at the moment. Fear or rage. The expression, caught with our pants down, would be said more times that day than any other. From FDR on down the line. Hello, Ray here. I just wanted to say a real quick thank you to those who have helped me out in my time of need. As for everyone else, I've found a way for you to support the show, and it won't cost you a thing. When it comes to listening to my show and Laszlo Montgomery's The China History Podcast, please use the brand new podcast app, Himalaya. It's best in class in regards to user interface and user experience, and it's only been out for three months. I've been using Himalaya for three weeks now. Love it. So simple to navigate. Himalaya has a ton of unique features, like episode and channel playlist, a tip jar, and has new features being added every week. And of course, you can find Himalaya in the app or Google Play Store to download. So please, download the app, use it to listen to my show, and Himalaya will show me some love. How easy is that? One of the last Japanese planes to leave Hawaiian airspace was that of Commander Mitsuo Fuchida. As best as he and his crew could, they counted ships sunk, enemy planes ablaze, buildings in ruin, and the number of their comrades heading north. The rising smoke from dozens of fires around him made this task increasingly cumbersome. He could not know it at the time, but the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor had cost the Japanese Empire relatively little, only 29 planes. Nine had been downed from the first wave, 20 from the second, as the Americans had been able to get fighters into the air and more anti-air weapons came online. He would learn later that all five midget subs had been lost. When Fuchida landed his plane on the Akagi, he was one of the last to do so, he made his way to the bridge. Their chief of staff of the combined fleet, Kusaka, Captain Minoru Genda, chief architect of the attack plan, and Admiral Nagumo, commander of the First Air Fleet, waited. Being given a cup of tea and a slice of bread, he told the men before him that the mission had achieved a success greater than any of them could have thought possible. Fuchida told them four battleships were sunk. I know from my own personal observation. The men sucked in their breaths, amazed. As for the four other dreadnoughts, those he could not honestly confirm. They had to be damaged, to be sure, some seriously. But saying anything other than that was speculation. But now came the $64 million question. Nagumo asked, Do you think that the U.S. fleet will be able to operate out of Pearl Harbor within six months? After all, that's why they were all there. Anything less than that time would risk Operation Number 1, the invasion of Southeast Asia. To gather the resources needed to continue battling the Chinese, as well as fighting off the assuredly wrathful Americans. 
Fuchida confidently told them that the six-month window had been achieved. However, many of the light cruisers and other vessels remained in harbor, which seemed to make their next course of action simple, at least for Fuchida. It would be worthwhile to launch another attack. This had been planned and prepared for, so Kusaka shot back. What do you think the target should be? Fuchida replied, equally direct, the dockyards, the fuel tanks, and an occasional ship. Yet, first, the discussion had to evolve around how safe was the first air fleet. To this, Fuchida and Genda, the first had seen the devastation with his own eyes, the second was a natural-born warrior, proclaimed that they, the Japanese, controlled the air between their ships and Oahu. Which was true enough, but that didn't really answer the question. When he was pressed again, Fuchida pulled back from his bravado, besides which his adrenaline was probably returning to normal. I believe we have destroyed many enemy planes, but I do not know whether we have destroyed them all. The enemy could still attack the fleet. However, the real oni, or ghost, to cause concern were the American carriers. Admiral Nagumo shot out, Where do you think the missing U.S. carriers are? Fuchida, now certainly having come down from his high, replied honestly that he did not know, but they must, by now, know of the attack on Pearl Harbor. What's more, the American carriers would be hunting for the first air fleet. To which Genda, the warrior, replied, Let the enemy come. If he does, we will shoot his planes down. Stay in the area for several days and run down the enemy carriers. Clearly, a decision had to be made, which was above Fuchida's pay grade. So he left to take part in a celebratory dessert, while Genda, Kusaka, and Nagumo discussed the situation further. The facts were presented one by one. The first wave lost nine planes, the second, twenty. How many would be lost by a third, as the Americans had to be, by now, armed to the teeth, more besides, probably eager for a fight? And again, where were the American carriers? Then someone brought up the idea, was it possible that a plane from the second wave was followed back to the carriers? If that was the case, then the Americans could know their location and could be, at this moment, telling their carriers where to go. Next came the weather, which was getting worse. Indeed, they had been lucky only to have the light cloud cover they did during the attack. Oddly, among the pilots, their feelings were not all of elation, depending on whether one flew in the first or second attack wave. The men of the second wave were more despondent, missing more of their comrades. As for Admiral Nagumo, he has already been accused of not being a true adherent of air power and did not understand the complexities of air warfare. So as the negatives piled up during their discussion, he made his decision. We may conclude that anticipated results have been achieved. Preparations for an attack cancelled. As word spread, some men were angry at their leader, others relieved. 
As time wore on and the war turned against the Empire, more and more officers chided Nugumo's timidity. However, it must be seen that taking out a few more ships or delaying fuel to the remaining Pacific fleet, there were the equivalent of 4.5 million barrels of petroleum at Pearl, for a few more months would not have made that much of a difference. Certainly, when considering the number of Japanese planes that would have probably been lost during a third strike. At 1.30 p.m., the Akagi raised its signal flags. The first air fleet was ordered to withdraw. The four American battleships hit by torpedoes would be out of the war for the six months needed by Japan, but they would not embody the revenge the Americans now sought to deliver. That would come in the form of the missing carriers. Either way, the American giant was awakened and burned with a desire to do to the entire Japanese empire what had been done to Battleship Row. Next time, we will replay the events of Pearl Harbor from the American point. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.